The title of the sermon today is God, the God of Israel. You'll see that phrase appear near to the end of our sermon text for today. And you'll notice that we will be considering Genesis 32.1 all the way through to 33.20. And so you notice that I am once again covering a very large narrative section of the book of Genesis. I did the same thing last week. I don't know if I did it very well, though. It was a bit cumbersome. Uh, there are portions of Genesis that need to be considered very carefully. It all needs to be considered carefully, but we need to go slowly through them. There are other portions of Genesis that seem to lend themselves, lend themselves to moving rather quickly as we take an entire narrative block, and that is what I am doing here. Here in this narrative, we find the story of Jacob's preparations to meet his offended brother Esau, his wrestling with the Lord, and his eventual reconciliation with Esau as he enters into the land of promise once more. I'm not going to read the entire text at the start of the sermon today, as is our custom, but we will read the text in three parts as we come to them in the progression of this sermon today. Let us consider, first of all, Jacob's preparations to meet his offended brother Esau, as described in Genesis 32, verses 1 through 21. Hear now the word of the Lord, Genesis 32, 1. Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, This is God's camp. So he called the name of that place Mahanaim. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, Thus you shall say to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants, and female servants. I have sent to tell my Lord in order that I may find favor in your sight. And the messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We came to your brother Esau, and he is coming to meet you, and there are four hundred men with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him and the flocks and herds and camels into two camps, thinking, if Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau. For I fear him, that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good, and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. So he stayed there that night, and from what he had with him he took a present for his brother Esau, 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 lambs, 30 milking camels and their calves, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. These he handed over to his servants, every drove by itself. And he said to his servants, pass on ahead of me and put a space between drove and drove. He instructed the first When Esau, my brother, meets you and asks you, To whom do you belong? Where are you going? And whose are these ahead of you? Then you shall say, They belong to your servant Jacob. They are a present, sent to my lord Esau. And moreover, he is behind us. 
He likewise instructed the second and the third and all who followed, the droves. You shall say the same thing to Esau when you find him, and you shall say, Moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he thought, I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me, and afterward I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present passed on ahead of him, and he himself stayed that night in the camp. This is the first section that we will consider today in the sermon. And I have five observations to make about this section. One, we should recognize from the outset Jacob's very unpleasant situation. No sooner had Jacob escaped the grasp of Laban that his mind was troubled by another threat. He would now have to face Esau, his older brother whom he had swindled out of his birthright and blessing many years earlier. We should remember that the last we heard about Esau was that he planned to comfort himself by killing Jacob for what he had done. Remember, Jacob swindled him out of his birthright and later his blessing, and he planned to kill Jacob. Uh, Remember that Jacob and Esau's mother told Jacob to go away to Laban and that she would send for him once Esau's wrath had cooled. But notice this, she never sent for him. That word never came. And so Jacob was right to assume that his brother was still angry and desired to do him harm. And so Jacob found himself in a predicament. He had escaped from Laban, but he was heading right towards Esau into the lion's mouth. He was stuck in between two enemies, both of whom were much stronger than he. And by the way, I think it is important to notice that this situation that Jacob was in is very similar to the situation that the people of Israel found themselves in after their exodus from Egypt and prior to their conquest of Canaan. The two stories mirror one another. They, Israel, after the exodus, for a time, were in a very vulnerable place. They were in that wilderness place with strong enemies on every side, and their vulnerability must have pressed them to rely upon their God. I think this is one of the reasons this story is told, mind you. Moses told it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And who did he first deliver this book to, the book of Genesis? He delivered it to the people of Israel. He delivered it to the people of Israel while they were in that wilderness place. So they could read this and say, huh, Jacob experienced the same thing. This is the circumstance we are in. He escaped Laban just as we have escaped Egypt. And he immediately was hard-pressed by Esau, just as we are hard-pressed by all the nations around us. The thought of entering into the land of Canaan is troublesome to us, for there are great and strong enemies there. What shall we do? So this story was to encourage the people of Israel to press on and to continue to trust in their God, who was able to deliver them. Just as God delivered Jacob, so too would God deliver them in this similar predicament. And brothers and sisters, you and I can relate to Jacob here. We can relate to Israel also in their experience. For we have been redeemed by Christ Jesus. We have been freed from bondage to Satan, sin, and the power of death. But we are not home yet. We are sojourners in a wilderness place. We are at once in this world, but not of it. And so we see, just as they saw in that time, that there are enemies that threaten us on every side. 
But we are to take courage knowing that God is with us. And because God is with us, we are able to sojourn in this place, yes, even in California, confidently, as we trust God to fulfill His promises and to bring us safely into the heavenly land of promise. I hope that you're seeing that these little narratives, these stories are filled with application for us. The Scriptures are not just saying, hey, look what happened to Jacob, just so that you might know the facts. Or later on, look what happened to Israel after the exodus and before the conquest, so that you might know the facts. No, these stories, these narratives have application embedded within them. This is what God has been doing with His people all along. He's been rescuing them from bondage to things. And He's been preserving them in a world that threatens them from every side. Israel was to take courage in this, in that wilderness wandering, and so too are we, brothers and sisters. I see that it is needful for the people of God to have this message delivered them, to them today. I, I hesitate to say more than ever because the world has always been like this. But so many within Christ's church are overwhelmed by fear. But we need not fear, for God is with us. He will preserve us. He will bring us safely home. That leads me to my second observation about this section. Notice how the Lord comforted Jacob by reminding him of his presence. Again, Jacob had escaped Laban, and he was entering the land of promise. But it was there that the angels of God met him. There in that difficult circumstance, the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, what did he say? He said, this is God's camp. He must have felt terribly alone. Just escaped Laban, worried about Esau. There he is sojourning. He's vulnerable. He doesn't have an army with him. He has his wives and his children, his livestock. That is it. But what did God do? He met him and revealed himself to him, leading him to say, this is God's camp. And so he called the name of that place Mahanaim. God was always with Jacob. This we know. But as Jacob was obedient to go to the land of promise, to that land that was promised to him and to his descendants, God graciously showed him this vision. Mahanaim means two camps. That is what the word means. It means two camps. Remember, Jacob was alone at this moment. But here he was reminded that he was not really alone. There were, in fact, two camps present. Jacob and what other camp? The camp of the Lord. The armies of God were camping with him. They were right beside him. Though he could not see them, God graciously revealed himself to them, to him in this moment, as so as to say, I am with you. And brothers and sisters, neither are you and I alone. With our eyes, we see only one camp here. Look around you. How many camps do you see? I see one with my eyes. I see the people of God assembled on the Lord's Day Sabbath. I see those who have been called to faith in Christ assembled together, God's army, God's kingdom visibly manifest before me. I see one camp, but the Lord is present with us along with the heavenly hosts for you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. I am here reading Hebrews 12, 22 through 24. The writer to the Hebrews was saying to them, you are not alone. 
But in coming to Christ and in assembling together as God's church, you are enjoying fellowship, not with one another only, but with God and the heavenly hosts and with the spirits of the saints made perfect also. You see one camp here, but there are two. For God is with us. We commune not only with one another, but with Him, the Lord's Supper being a visible reminder of that very thing. You and I are reminded of the Lord's presence each Lord's Day as we assemble together in the name of Christ. It is here in this place that we hear God's Word. It is here that we sing and pray, not just to one another, but to God. It is here that we see Christ's kingdom manifest, made visible, as we set our eyes upon others who also have said the words, Jesus is Lord. We see Christ's kingdom here. And it is here that Christ's broken body and shed blood is represented before us, as if the Lord were saying through the elements, Did I not tell you, behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Do not neglect the assembly, brothers and sisters. For it is here primarily that we are reminded that there are always two camps. Ours, the visible one, and the heavenly camp of the God who will never leave us nor forsake us. Three, notice how Jacob took action to protect his camp. At first he sent messengers to Esau to inform him that he was coming. Undoubtedly, the purpose was also to get a sense of Esau's disposition towards Jacob. It was still a mystery to him. Has his anger abated, or is he still filled with wrath towards me, Jacob thought. The news was not good. Esau was coming out to meet Jacob. That was nice of him, wasn't it, to come out to meet Jacob? No, he was coming with 400 men. Another way to say it is he was coming with an army. People do not travel around with 400 men unless they intend to fight. And so Jacob understood this to mean that Esau's intention was to do him harm. And he was probably right. Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. These are strong words in the Hebrew. He trembled. He was overwhelmed with fear. And so he took this approach. He divided his camp then into two. If Esau attacked one camp, the other might escape, was his reasoning. And throughout this narrative, it is apparent that Jacob was walking by faith He went forward trusting in the promises of God, but he also took action. This I have emphasized a number of times. He took action. And brothers and sisters, I have said it before and must say it again. Trusting in the Lord does not mean that we are to sit idly by. In Christ, we are to walk by faith. But notice that the Christian life will always involve these things. Walking and believing. We are to walk by faith. Walking and believing are always required as we sojourn in this world. We are to have faith in God, but we are not to forget to walk. That is to put one foot in front of the other and to take responsibility for our own actions. We are to trust in Him, but take action. And so I have this application for you. Believe upon the Lord, but also be sure that you are obedient. Do not neglect to do that which God's Word has required of you. Do not neglect to live according to wisdom, the wisdom that is contained within the Scriptures. Four, notice that after Jacob divided this camp, he prayed. He prayed. He took action, and then he prayed. Some might criticize Jacob for dividing his camp first and then praying second. Those who are exceptionally pious, 
might say that Jacob should have started with prayer. That would have been the spiritual thing to do, right? Start with prayer, Jacob, and then move on to action. But in Jacob's defense, I think you would agree that there are some circumstances that arise in life that require action to be taken first, and then to follow that action with prayer. To give you an obvious example, if your house is burning, you ought to take action first and then pray later. In fact, when we come to the prayer of Jacob, we find that it was a beautiful prayer, one that is permeated with trust in God and faith in His promises. So I'm not critical of Jacob here. I think it was right for him to act as he was being threatened, but his prayer, when we come to it, we find it to be a beautiful prayer. The prayer is found in 32, 9 through 12, and it may be divided into five parts. One, Jacob addressed God as the God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac. And some have wondered, didn't Jacob, didn't Jacob consider God to be his God too? Why did he not name God as his God? And the answer is clearly yes, but here Jacob refers to God as the God of Abraham and Isaac because his mind is at this moment set upon the promises of God given first to them. That is the point. Why does he call God the God of Abraham and Isaac? Because his whole prayer, we will see, is going to be directed towards and based upon the promises that the Lord had given first to Abraham and to Isaac Two, we see that Jacob emphasized what the Lord had commanded him to do when he referred to God as the Lord who said to me, Return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. In other words, Jacob begins to pray to the God of Abraham and Isaac and to his God. And he initially reminds God as if God needed to be reminded, Hey, I'm on this journey and I'm on this, in this very vulnerable place because you told me to go. You told me to go. You told me to return to your country and your kindred that I may do good to you. Again, it is not that God needed to be reminded of this. Jacob prayed this way to remind himself of the promises of God. And when he prayed in this way, it was as if he said to the Lord, Lord, I need your help if I am to obey your command in regard to returning to this land. You have said go, and here I'm threatened on every side. I need your help. Three, notice the humility and utter brokenness of Jacob when he said, I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan. In other words, I left the land with nothing. But now I have become two camps. I have all of these possessions, and you are with me also. You've been so gracious to me, Lord. You've been so good to me. And what does Jacob say? In humility, he recognizes that he was not worthy of any of it. He did not deserve it. All that he had was because the Lord was gracious to him. Fourthly, Jacob asked the Lord's provision, saying specifically, here is his request, Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. So he brings this request to the Lord, which we are invited to do in prayer. But he does not bring the request until he addresses God as Father. Until he reminds himself and God of the promises that have been made. He does not bring the request until he has done those things. But he says, please, here is my request. Deliver me from this threat. And fifthly and lastly, Jacob based his prayer upon the promises of God that were previously given. In verse 12, he says, but you said, you, God, said to me, Jacob, I will surely do good to you and make your offspring as the sand of the sea 
which cannot be numbered for multitude. God, how will this promise come to pass if I am killed and my family slaughtered by Jacob and his 400 men? This is a wonderful prayer. It it seems to me, judging by the content of this prayer, that our friend Jacob has progressed significantly in his sanctification over the past 20 years. Don't you get that impression? Jacob addressed God as Father. He prayed not for selfish gain, but out of his desire to be obedient to God. He knew that he was unworthy, and he readily admitted that. He humbly asked for the Lord's help, and this he did boldly as he believed upon the promises of God given first to Abraham and Isaac, but also to him. He has progressed significantly in his sanctification. He has matured in his faith. The fifth and last observation that I have regarding this first section is that Jacob was very eager to appease Esau's wrath. Certainly this was due in part out of a desire for self-preservation. Jacob didn't want to die, nor did he want any harm to befall his family. But there also seems to be a desire on the part of Jacob to make things right with Esau regarding their past. He sent a large gift to Esau, head of the family. In fact, he sent 530 animals with his servants. These he sent in waves or droves. He instructed his servants to greet Esau with the same words so that he, Esau, would hear them again and again. Again, when Esau asked the servants, to whom do you belong? Where are you going? And who are these ahead of you? They were to reply saying, they belong to your servant, Jacob. Listen to the language. They belong to your Servant Jacob, wait a minute. I thought Jacob was to have preeminence. Wasn't it Jacob who was so eager to have the birthright of the firstborn? Wasn't it Jacob that stole the blessing in the past, 20 years earlier? Jacob was snatching at all of that, eager to have preeminence, eager to have it for himself. But here, what is the message he sends to Esau? He sends this message on behalf of his servants They belong to your servant, Jacob. They are a present sent to my Lord, Esau. He calls Esau Lord, and moreover, he is behind us. Again, he referred to himself as Esau's servant. He referred to Esau as Lord. And I am saying that this is quite a change of attitude from the last time that Jacob and Esau were together. It seems to me that Jacob had been humbled He had been softened and sanctified during those years with Laban. And I think you can read into what, what, what took place in his heart. Having been tricked and taken advantage of by Laban for 20 years, it seems that Jacob now understands how awful it was to take advantage of Esau and to trick him as he did all those years ago. And so now he seems very eager to appease Esau's wrath to cover for former sins and to have their relationship restored. The Lord sanctifies His people. We know this. But I think it is interesting to pay attention to how the Lord disciplines and instructs and sanctifies His children. He instructs us by His Word and Spirit, doesn't He? His Word is preached. The Spirit of God applies it to the hearts of His people as the Spirit moves us along and helps us. But often He will discipline us through sufferings also. The Lord will sometimes teach us to hate sin by giving us over to it and to its consequences for a time. I do not think that 
any Christian will have real victory over habitual sin until he or she comes to see and believe that the sin is truly vile, dark, destructive, and deadly. Why are Christians sometimes given over to sin? I think it is so that the Lord might, through the consequences of that sin, through the miserable experience that comes along with it, put the sin to death fully and finally within us. Some are, wa- some are wise and they see sin for what it is by simply believing the Word of God. What a blessing that is. If you are wise like that, if you are able to read the Scriptures which say, do not covet, and therefore you decide not to covet because God has said so, there's wisdom there. You are one of those who learns lessons the easy way, you see. Do not covet, I won't covet. Do not lust, I won't lust. Do not harbor bitterness and unforgiveness in your heart, I won't do it. Why? Because God has said it. That's wisdom. You learn lessons the easy way. But there are some in the world who have to learn lessons the hard way. And how do they learn it? Well, they hear God's word, but they, for whatever reason, neglect it. They live in sin. They covet. They lust. They are bitter people. And how does the Lord put that sin to death within His children? Well, sometimes by giving them over to it and to its consequences. They live in misery for a time. Darkness for a time. They live in depression for a time. But the Lord is saying to them, Do you see how vile this is? Do you see how destructive this sin is? And I wonder if this was not Jacob's experience. Why was he sent into exile for those 20 years? Why was he put under Laban's, under Laban's thumb for those 20 years? Seven years for the one daughter, seven for the another, another, and then... Six, when he's gathering those flocks. Why all of that? I think when Jacob looked at Laban, he saw himself there. And I think he was taught a lesson. My goodness, what have I done? What Laban has done to me, I did to Esau. Laban, the deceiver. Laban, that, that heel snatcher. That's me. How wicked my transgression was. I now feel what Esau felt when I tricked him and duped him to take what belonged to him in that way. Jacob seems to get it now. What he did to his older brother all those years ago was wrong, and now he is eager to make amends, and more than anything he desires peace. Brothers and sisters, I pray that you would have the same awakening in regard to sin in your life, that you would come to see just how vile, dark, and destructive it is so that you do not play with it in the least. And so what does Jacob do? He does everything in his power to make peace. Romans 12, 18 says, If possible, so far as it depends upon you, live peaceably with all. Did you hear that? Christian, if possible, so far as it depends upon you, live peaceably with all men. That's your obligation as a Christian. It does not say sit idly by and wait for people to make amends with you. But you are to live peaceably with all men. Hebrews 12.14 says, Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. In Ephesians 4.1-3, Paul urges the Christian to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And so I wonder, are you eager to be at peace with all men? 
Perhaps you're at odds with a non-believer. Do everything in your power to make it right. Perhaps you're at odds with someone in this church. You're to do everything in your power to make it right. Perhaps you are at odds with someone in your own family. You're to be eager to maintain peace. You're to be humble and gentle, patient. You're to bear with the weaknesses of others in love. This is what God has called us to. And so are you striving for peace as Jacob did with Esau against whom he had sinned? Up to this point in the narrative, Jacob's primary concern is his relationship with Esau. His preparations and prayers were about Esau and the reconciliation of their terribly broken relationship. But I want you to notice that as the narrative unfolds, we learn that this wasn't God's primary concern for Jacob. Are you following with me? There's Jacob. He's afraid of Esau. He's praying to God to deliver him from Esau. He's sending gifts to Esau. On Jacob's mind is what? Terribly broken relationship with my brother who is now a threat to me. How can I appease him? But I am saying that as the narrative unfolds, God's primary concern for Jacob is a little different. Even more important than Jacob's relationship with Esau was Jacob's relationship with who? With God. Though it is evident that by this time Jacob had faith, I believe that is true, and that his faith was growing, I think that is also true. It appears from what happens next that there was still some unfinished business between God and Jacob. Here in 32-22-32, we learn that Jacob wrestled with God. We learn that Jacob wrestled with God. Hear now the word of the Lord, Genesis 32-22. That same night he, Jacob, arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven children, and crossed the ford of the Yobach He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket. And Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he, the man, said, Let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he, that is this man, said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men, and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, Please tell me your name. But he said, Why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. You're getting three sermons in one today. Did you notice that? We won't go long. I do give you my word about that. Well, we won't go too long. This story is one of the more mysterious stories found in the pages of Holy Scripture. Don't you agree? Jacob was left all alone after sending his family and possessions across the Yobach River. Why did he remain alone as the others journeyed onward? The text doesn't say. I think it is safe to assume that Jacob needed to be alone to do business with God. And while he was all alone, he was assaulted by what he at first thought was a man. And evidently, this this battle, this wrestling lasted a long time, even until the break of day, when the man 
touched Jacob's hip to put it out of joint. Some, I think, translations say that touched that sciatic nerve. Some of you, I know, have back pain, and so you know how this can drop you to the ground instantaneously, right? Who was this man that Jacob wrestled with? That's the question. Well, as the event unfolded, Jacob became aware that this man was no mere man, but that he, in fact, was wrestling with God himself. He was wrestling with God himself. More precisely, he was wrestling with the angel of the Lord, a physical manifestation of the invisible God. As daybreak drew near, the man spoke to Jacob, saying, Let me go, for the day has broken. Jacob's reply was, I will not let you go until you bless me. So it is clear from this reply that Jacob knew that he was wrestling with the Lord. This would have been very strange. This would have been a very strange thing for Jacob to request if he thought that he was doing combat with a mortal enemy. I mean, who says that? Here you are in hand-to-hand combat, wrestling. You've been disabled by your, by your assaulter, by your enemy. And your reply is, I will not let you go until you bless me. No one says that uh, when doing normal combat with a mortal enemy. Jacob knew that he was wrestling at this point with something more than someone, more than a mere man. He says, I will not let you go until you bless me. The blessing of the Lord had already been pronounced upon Jacob by his father. Jacob had also received the promises of the Lord delivered to him. But in this moment of trial, Jacob wanted the blessing of the Lord more than anything else. That was his greatest desire. This is my one plea. This is my one request that you would bless me. This is what I need. I cannot go forward on this journey unless I have your blessing. And brothers and sisters, I wonder, do you have this same desire? Do you desire to be blessed of the Lord more than any other thing? Put differently, if you had to choose between great wealth, great health, and all worldly pleasures on the one hand, and being blessed of the Lord on the other, what would you choose? Honestly, what would you choose? Would you choose the world and all of its pleasures, or would you choose being blessed of the Lord? To be blessed of the Lord means many things, but supremely it means to be in a right relationship with Him. That is what it means. Psalm 32.1 says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Romans 4.7 says, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count sin. So I'm asking you, which would you choose if you had to? The riches and pleasures of this world or the blessing of being in a right relationship with the Lord, your sins washed away? Jacob would not let the man go until he blessed him. By this point in his life, this was his leading desire to know the Lord and to be known by Him, to have his sins forgiven. Jacob prevailed, we are told. In verse 27, the man spoke to Jacob, saying, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and men and have prevailed. You have prevailed. Jacob was in this moment given the name Israel as a memorial to the change that had occurred within him. From birth, Jacob, as he was called, was a heel snatcher. He was one who took advantage of others, his name meaning, Jacob, one who seizes or one who supplants. 
But here he is given the name Israel, indicating that over time his character has changed. Instead of being a deceptive cheat, he was one who wrestled with God and prevailed. This is the first time that the word Israel appears in the pages of Holy Scripture. Etymologically, the word means he who struggles with God. But in this story, we have a clarification of the significance of this name. It is true that Jacob wrestled with God and prevailed, but we must pay careful attention to the way in which he prevailed. What do you mean he prevailed? Was not he defeated by this man? His hip being put out of socket? In what sense did Jacob prevail with the Lord? In what sense then are we to understand the name Israel given to Jacob and to his descendants after him? How do these wrestle with the Lord and prevail with Him? One, Jacob prevailed, that is to say he got the blessing, because God condescended to him. God pursued Jacob, notice. God came to engage him and to reveal himself to him in the flesh. I think it is a ridiculous thought that a man would be able to wrestle with God at all, let alone for a long time, so as to prevail over God, to win the match with Him. But God made Himself low for Jacob, just as a father wrestles with his toddler child and gives him the upper hand. So God permitted that Jacob wrestle with him for a time. The wrestling was prolonged, not because God was weak and Jacob strong, but because God condescended to Jacob's capacity. He brought Himself low and allowed Jacob to wrestle with him. So we must begin there, seeing this, that Jacob prevailed with God, not because of his strength, but because of God's condescension. Two, he prevailed, that is to say he got the blessing, only after being defeated by God. This has to be noted. How did Jacob prevail? He prevailed through defeat. He prevailed through loss. He prevailed by, first of all, being overcome. Do you notice that in the story? I know it sounds ridiculous at first, but it's true. Jacob prevailed with the Lord by being defeated by him. Three, he prevailed, that is to say he got the blessing, only by crying out to God and pleading for his mercy and grace. There he is, uh, we might say, mortally wounded, unable to fight any longer, his hip being put out of joint. But what does Jacob do? He just clings to God. And he cries out to God, I will not let you go until you bless me. Bless me, Jacob said. In other words, Jacob prevailed with God not because he pursued God and conquered him in his own strength, but because God pursued him, wounded him, and brought him low. God brought Jacob to that place of utter humility so that the only thing he could do was cry out to the Lord and say, Do not leave me, but give me your blessing. And this, friends, is the only way for man to wrestle with God and prevail. It is the only way. If man is to prevail with the Lord, he must be humbled. He must be brought to the end of himself, into that place of utter despair. If man is to prevail with the Lord, he must be brought low into that place where the only thing he can do is cry out for the mercy of God. If there is any fight left in us, we will not prevail. But it is when all fight leaves us in regard to our relationship with God that we are able to cry out for God's grace and mercy and trust in Him alone for the forgiveness of our sins, receiving His blessing through Christ Jesus our Lord. I want you to remember that this was Paul's experience. 
Before his name was Paul the Apostle, he was called Saul, the persecutor of the church. He was arrogant in his opposition to Christ and his church. But what did the Lord do? He humbled Paul. He struck him with blindness. And when he had fallen to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. You know what that means, right? These oxen would have goads put behind them to keep them from kicking, these sharp, pointy objects. But that's what Paul was doing. He was wrestling with God in those years leading up to his conversion. And God is saying to Saul at this point, Stop fighting. Stop fighting against me, but submit to me. Saul, the persecutor of the church, became Paul, the apostle of Christ, but only after being humbled, only after being brought low. The only way to prevail with God is for Him to first prevail over us. That is the point. The way for man to conquer God, if we may speak in this way, is to first be conquered by Him. And brothers and sisters, all who rightly and truly bear the name the Israel of God have had the same experience. Like Saul and Jacob before, all who have God as their God and Father know what it is to wrestle with God to be overcome by Him, and thus to prevail with Him, so as to receive His blessing. This is why Jesus said, For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Gaining Christ and the heavenly blessings that are found in Him requires that we first give up. We must tap out. We must come to the end of ourselves saying, Lord, I am nothing on my own. I have no strength, no hope. Save me. And if you are in Christ Jesus, if you are truly the Israel of God, you know what this is like. After Jacob was given the name Israel as a memorial to the grace of God that was bestowed upon him, he then asked the man to reveal his name. And to maintain the mystery, the man said, what is it that, Why is it that you ask my name? He doesn't give it. And there he blessed him. But Jacob knew the truth of the matter He didn't need to know the name. He knew the truth. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. He understood what he had just experienced. He had wrestled with God and prevailed with Him. He received the blessing. Not only was Jacob given the name Israel as a memorial, but he went on walking with a limp from that day forward. And so it is for all who have been subdued by Christ. They too walk with a limp. Having been humbled by God, they continue on in humility, being ever mindful of their inadequacy and the grace of God shown to them in Christ Jesus. We should walk with a limp, brothers and sisters, always. We should walk humbly before God and man. In the third and final section of our text for today, we hear of Jacob's meeting with Esau. We will spend the least amount of time on this section, so listen very carefully now to the word of the Lord read. 33.1 And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming, and four hundred men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants, and he put the servants with their children in front. Then Leah with her children, and Rachel and Joseph last of all. He himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and wept. They wept together. And when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children, he said, Who are these with you? Jacob said, They are the children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the servant drew near, servants drew near, they and their children, and bowed down. 
Leah likewise and her children drew near, drew near and bowed down. And last, Joseph and Rachel drew near and they bowed down. Esau said, What do you mean by all this company that I meet? And Jacob answered, To find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Jacob said, No, please, if I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand. For I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you, because God has dealt graciously with me, and because I have enough. Thus he urged him and took it. Then Esau said, Let us journey on our way, and I will go ahead of you. But Jacob said to him, My Lord knows that the children are frail, and that the nursing flocks and herds are a care to me. If they are driven hard for one day, all of the flocks will die. Let my Lord pass on ahead of his servant, and I will lead on slowly at the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me, and at the pace of the children, until I come to my Lord and seer. So Esau said, Let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. But he said, What need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. But Jacob returned to Succoth and built himself a house and made booths for his livestock. Therefore the name of the place is Succoth. And Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way from Padan Aram. And he camped before the city. And from the sons of Hamar, Shechem's father, he brought... He bought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land on which he had pitched his tent. There he erected an altar and called it El Elohi Israel. Three things should be noticed. One, take notice again of Jacob's humble disposition. And I will say it once more, clearly something changed in this man over the past 20 years. Notice how he humbly bowed before Esau, calling him Lord. He gave him gifts as if restoring unto him the birthright and the blessing that he had stolen because of those many years ago. And as I said before, those who have wrestled with God and have been subdued by Him, they walk with a limp. They walk humbly before God and man. Brothers and sisters, I might make this point of application. If you have been reconciled to God... Have you also been reconciled to one another? The two things do correspond. If we have made peace with God, if we have received His grace and His forgiveness, should it not also affect our earthly relationships as well, so that we are willing and able to extend grace and forgiveness to those around us and to pursue reconciliation with them? Two, notice Esau's tenderness to Jacob. This is surprising given that Esau came out to Jacob as if prepared for war. It seems that Esau did intend to do Jacob harm at first, but that he had a change of heart on the way. Could it be that the prayer of Jacob and the gifts that he sent actually had an effect upon Esau? I think they did. Brothers and sisters, not only should we be concerned to have a right relationship with God, but also man. Again, we are commended to strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. But we must take care to pray that the Lord would bring about that reconciliation. He must work if relationships are to be reconciled. And it seems that the Lord did work on the heart of Esau here as he journeyed towards Jacob. Three, notice that while Esau vacated the land, Jacob entered it and took possession of it. This is a very important part of the story of redemption. Jacob, the younger of the two brothers, was the one who received the promises made to Abraham and to Isaac. To him, it was said, and not to Esau, may God give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you that you may take take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. Now, all these years later, we see the beginning of the fulfillment of this promise. 
Esau vacated the land, and Jacob entered into it. From the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land which he had pitched his tent. There he erected an altar and called it El Elohi Israel, which means God, the God of Israel. And so clearly Jacob's faith had matured. More than anything, he desired God's blessing, and above all, he was devoted to the worship of his God in the land that was promised to him and to his offspring forever. This sets the stage for the history of Israel, which we will consider at a later time. Brothers and sisters, I conclude with these words. May the Lord bless you with the faith of Jacob. May you desire above all earthly things to be blessed in the Lord. May He humble you so that you bow the knee before Him. May He conquer you so that you might have Him as your God. May the aim of your life be to glorify Him in all things. And may you sojourn well until the Lord brings us into the promised land, the new heavens and earth earned by Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this rich narrative. We thank You for the progress that You brought about in the life of Jacob, the gift of faith that You gave to him. We thank You, Father, that You are gracious and kind to Your uh, creatures, to fallen and sinful men and women, that You would wrestle with us and allow us to wrestle with You. Lord, this is our prayer, that You would subdue us, Lord, completely. Help us to walk before You humbly, Lord, clinging to Christ, hoping in Him, and in Him alone. It's in His name that we pray, and, of all, and, and all of God's people say, Amen.